investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode 47 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is a frigid January 10th, 2020. Got a number of pretty important things happening in the market this week that we want to chat about off the top. Uh, Hudson's Bay, finally a resolution to this saga that we've been chatting out for the past six months or so. Richard Baker, the chairman of Hudson's Bay, he settled with the shareholder activists by raising his bid to 11 bucks a share. Next in M&A news, HP rejected Xerox's approach after Xerox secured their financing. What happens next on this deal? Going to chat a bit more about SoftBank's Vision Fund. They ran into some struggles at portfolio company Zoom Pizza. Does this call into question its investment process? And lastly, going to touch on the jobs reports out of Canada and the U.S. We're going to chat about the story behind the numbers there. Hudson's Bay Company Chairman Richard Baker, he increased his offer to take the retailer private from $10.30 per share to 11 bucks, which seems to have sealed the deal for the shareholder activists on this one. This deal values the company around $2 billion. Now, some background, he initially started out with an unsolicited proposal at $9.45 a share, got the board on side at $10.30, got shareholders on side at 11 bucks. My thoughts on the deal? Well, it certainly is better than letting the deal break and the stock fall 50%. So a small win for shareholders. 11 bucks still pales in comparison to the underlying net asset value of the company. Not to mention, talking about the activist campaign by shareholder Catalyst Capital. Now, they're a private equity firm based out of Toronto. And they held a 17.5% stake in Hudson's Bay. They became the loudest critic of the buyout, which was first announced in early June. So they built up a stake and then did a tender offer for about 10% of the company at $10.11. So getting 11 bucks to them after all the hard work they put in, all the legal fees and such, not, uh, not a huge win. But a win nonetheless, making a bit of profit here. The major point of debate and major disagreement between shareholders and the chairman, his group, is really the value of Hudson's Bay real estate. Now, they have a flagship store in Manhattan, the flagship Saks store. In 2014, it was valued by a lender at over $4 billion. Now, they had a valuation on this go private. They pegged it at roughly $2 billion. So it's really hard. Shareholders had a difficult time uh, swallowing that pill on a 50% decline on perhaps one of the most prime pieces of real estate globally. That was a major issue. Uh, Another thing was very poor share price performance. I mean, since 2015, the stock is down from 29 bucks. Prior to the deal being announced, it was six bucks and change. Now kind of a mercy kill here at 11 bucks. Still some smaller shareholders against it, but this one's gonna get done. What are your thoughts on it? 
Yeah, I would agree that it's going to be done, especially with Catalyst now agreeing to vote for the deal. There are some uh, conditions that need to be met in terms of when their proxy is filed, but it does look like they will be voting for it. Uh, As you had mentioned, they own about 17.5% of the company, which actually represents about 32% of the minority shareholder votes needed. So that is their biggest hurdle was getting Catalyst on board as the Baker uh, Consortium. They own about 57%, but there was a majority of the minority shareholders needed for this vote to pass through. As well, as you had mentioned, there still are a few smaller shareholders that are not in favor of the deal. Uh, Ortelius Advisors, they're a New York-based activist hedge fund. Uh, They're still proceeding with their lawsuit against HBC and Baker, despite the offer increase, uh, seeking an injunction against the deal. They're still not happy with price. And just a little bit further to your point about the Saks Fifth Avenue flagship store is it is well known that New York real estate has been having some struggles over the last couple of years. But you do make a good point that it is such a prestigious location that it's not as clear at the high point at the premium listings on the real estate market if it's been going down and a 50% haircut is quite massive. Right. And as for stock trading, still trades at a slight discount to the takeover value of 11 bucks. It's at about a 1% spread, which, uh, you know, 8 to 10% annualized should close in the next month or two. I should just caution investors. Could be some negative tax consequences on that. So if you're uh, involved or want to be involved, it requires some tax due diligence on your side. In other M&A news, HP rejected Xerox's approach after Xerox announced that they did secure financing for this $33 billion takeover, which is really just the story of uh, Minnow trying to take over a whale, Xerox, a printer company, trying to take over another printer company, but Xerox is quite a bit smaller, roughly one quarter of the size of HP. Now, this is bid at 22 bucks a share for HP. It's made up of $17 in cash and the remaining $5 in Xerox shares. Of course, unsolicited, potentially hostile proposal. HP hit back today, stated that it, quote, significantly undervalues HP and is not a basis for discussion. So pretty harsh rejection on that one, really not leaving open any door for discussions from Xerox. However, big activist investor involved, Carl Icahn, uh, it's a shareholder on both sides, right? He is really pushing these companies to merge. He called it a, quote, no-brainer. And when Carl Icahn calls something a no-brainer, I listen up, right? Because last time he did that was on uh, Apple stock in 2013 when he was trading at roughly seven to eight times earnings and had a massive win on that one. The stock's up a couple hundred percent since that. So Icon, the octogenarian billionaire, he owns roughly four to five percent stake in HP and an 11 percent stake in Xerox. So this is a pretty big deal, 33 billion. Xerox indicated that they have secured $24 billion in financing for this takeover. But uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, Likely to get done, likely not to get done. You look at the share price action, HP up 10%, Xerox up 6% since it was made public. Shareholders are liking it. Yeah, in terms, I guess, long story short, I I don't believe that the deal will get done. Um, I guess, first of all, hostile bids, 
that contain share consideration are typically not successful. Also, this wasn't really a massive premium or anything um, of that nature that would really entice uh, investors to act. Uh, but just as a general rule, hostile bids typically don't have shares, a share consideration, usually just cash. Uh, but as obviously that is very difficult for uh, Xerox to make a uh, a fully cash offer. And so when the, when the, they came out after announcing they had secured financing for the offer, it was kind of a moot point since HP's main point of contention was, not, was both financing and undervaluation of the HP shares. So they really only addressed one of the issues and really just a secondary issue. Their main issue was the undervaluation of, of the shares. And when you mentioned Carl Icahn, mm-hmm. he does sit on Xerox's board, but you know, Carl Icahn is never never one to be shy from any sort of uh, um, p- potential conflicts of interest or anything of that nature. Yeah, he doesn't give up easily either. Absolutely not. And so ultimately, the both sides have, have acknowledged that there are a lot of pros to them being combined, to, to them consolidating into one entity just in terms of the synergies. So really, it sounds like it's just semantics over which company will acquire the other. But in its current form, I don't think there's any way that this deal gets done. Right. That makes sense because there will be a lot of debt in the pro forma entity if it's Xerox acquiring HP because HP has a $30 billion market cap versus Xerox is at $7.7 billion. So like I said, Minnow trying to swallow a whale here what do we think is going to happen? Well, I think if a deal is to get done, the tables will probably be turned and HP will be like, okay, consolidation makes sense. We'll just buy you Xerox instead of the other way around. That way it just, the performant entity is just far less leveraged and doesn't have all those financing issues. That definitely makes sense. And I'm sure Carl Icahn, the activist investor, major shareholder of both companies, he'd be on side with that just because massive synergies available here. Absolutely. I think he's completely indifferent as to who acquires who. Uh, That's just semantics from his standpoint. Some more struggles at SoftBank's Vision Fund. Now, this is specifically at one of their portfolio companies, Zoom Pizza, whose really novel concept involved robots making pizza. And they just raised a ton of dough. They raised $375 million last year from SoftBank's Vision Fund at a $2.25 billion valuation. And it wasn't just the amount of money and valuation that was insane. What was also crazy is this was, this $2.25 billion valuation was up from only $170 million valuation one year prior. So that's right. A pizza restaurant's valuation going up north of tenfold in one year, which is just boggles the mind, but goes to show you that perhaps uh, this wasn't the best investment because now they're announcing major layoffs, they're cutting 80% of their staff and pivoting, believe it or not, from pizza to packaging. So no more uh, Zoom pizza for them. And this isn't an isolated incident. Other SoftBank-backed startups 
one being get around the other one being oyo or is it oyo i don't know it's based out of india so we don't really have any exposure they also announced very large layoffs and it really represents this push by softbanks portfolio companies and really other vc backed startups in this big push to become profitable because we have seen a lot of unprofitable companies come public and public market investors really just weren't having it their share price performance has been poor and it really hasn't worked out well for softbank has it no it certainly hasn't and, and in terms of their actual cash burn. Now, I'd read some reports that they were losing about $50 million per year, but it was also reported, I believe that was earlier in 2019, and that by the end of 2019, the later months of 2019, that their cash burn was up over $10 million per month. So they were burning cash at a pretty high rate. As well, you did mention that they had raised money at that $2 billion valuation, which was a massive bump up between financing rounds. But as well, as of November 2019, so just a few months ago, they were also planning on raising an additional capital round at a $4 billion valuation. So then doubling that, um, obviously they were not able to do so. They weren't successful with that. When you think about it, how do you spend hundreds of millions of dollars in a pizza restaurant? It's kind of kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. And so with regards to their new pivot to sustainable packaging, along with food production and delivery systems, they do have their sustainable pizza boxes being tested by Pizza Hut currently, I believe just in Phoenix, Arizona. But so they do have a pilot project going, but typically a company that's worth in the billions of dollars isn't just working with a small pilot project. Uh, and as well, the pizza box isn't isn't really the largest part of the value chain if you look at the whole pizza buying experience. That's just a really small component of the value chain. And I really don't see how that would be supportive of such a high valuation. And I guess you know, SoftBank must be coming to that realization as well. One other point on SoftBank is that, you know, with their vision fund, now we've talked about them a lot with WeWork, uh, but this is just another of a list of high profile investment flops for the vision fund as well you have a few other ones you had mentioned a couple but get around and wag uh, they've had to cut cut staff and pivot their business models which you really don't see with like late stage vc investing you don't see that as much with seed investors absolutely you're going to see some pivots but that's really a rare typically these companies they would raise some capital for softbank and then just ipo yeah you figure when you're a so-called unicorn with a valuation above of $1 billion that you would have had a business model figured out. Isn't that just table stakes at that point? Absolutely. And it, as well, I mean, there was another report uh, from Axios that came out this week talking about uh, SoftBank's vision fund and how they have been walking away from a number of term sheets with startups, which really isn't all that surprising in the VC space, but it is really bad when that becomes public oh, because that really is bad. really bad for their <laughs> brand. I guess the only thing is that they don't, SoftBank itself, and the Vision Fund don't really have a ton of competitors in the check sizes that they're writing at this point in time, since they're just coming in, they're the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room that's just throwing money at startups at a at such levels that not a lot of other VCs are able to compete with. Yeah, and it believes, I believe that that strategy, it looks like that strategy has ended, right? With all of them walking from 
all these term sheets and what SoftBank was trying to do with respect to its portfolio companies was throw a tremendous amount of money at each one in each category and try to build up a category leader. And what's happening now with Zoom, Get Around, Wag, etc., it hasn't worked. In fact, it's turned into a complete disaster. So you look at SoftBank and scratch your head, what were they thinking? And they were throwing a ton of money at these massive valuations at these later stage startups. And clearly, it's not panning out. SoftBank confirming that they do regret these situations. However, you know, that doesn't get their investors' money back, nor does it really build their reputation here. So it really calls into question their investment prowess. Obviously, SoftBank run by Masayoshi Sun, who was famous for one of the greatest VC investments of all time into Alibaba. I believe he sunk, what, 20 or 50 million? Now it's worth uh tens of billions or perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars after only knowing Jack Ma for about 20 minutes. So it was never uh, Masayoshi's son's thing to do a lot of due diligence. Perhaps he just got lucky once and is trying to sort of, you know, re-engage that magic. But uh, who knows? They always say if your first investment is just a magnificent success, then that's actually bad because you don't learn about failure and perhaps you don't have the right risk management in place. But nonetheless, we'll continue to watch what's going on at SoftBank and their vision fund. But right now, it's not looking great. And then on the VC side, I mean, things are really drying up for startups without this uh, massive $100 billion fund writing huge checks, like nine-figure checks into these startups that don't really have much of a business model. Absolutely. And it's really just you know, the, with the liquidity from SoftBank drying up really just engages back into the typical exit or, you know, at companies at that stage of their growth cycle of going public. There's, SoftBank was really just delaying these companies having to go public since they were able to raise money, dollar amounts that were able, that were what you would typically get from the public markets on an IPO, they were able to forego that and stay private. So it, it is something that we're going to follow moving forward as it has a lot of implications for uh, the, the VC space as well as the startup space in general. We wanted to touch on the jobs reports. We saw numbers from both Canada and the US. So Canada beat while the US missed touching up on the uh, Great White North. The Canadian economy really bounced back in the employment numbers. Two consecutive months of declines, but in December, we were in the positive gain of 35,200 jobs in the month. Uh, this came in ahead of consensus economist estimates for a 25,000 gain. So a nice beat on that number. Now, this brings the total number of jobs created in 2019 to over 320,000, which is the second most uh, annual, second largest annual gain since 2007. So the Canadian economy still chugging along. The unemployment rate did tick down on the month to 5.6 from 5.9% in November. However, we did touch on that November jobs report, which we believe was, you know, complete, completely made up, totally false, and uh, perhaps some uh, blowback from. Uh, slightly fudged numbers coming into the October election. Nonetheless, uh, touching on the U.S., now the American economy added 145,000 jobs in December. Now, this actually missed the consensus estimate for 160,000 additions. Uh, the unemployment rate in the U.S. is spectacularly low, a 50-year low of 3.5%. This is 
down from November's gain, the 145,000 in December is down from 256,000 in November, but that was really swollen from uh, GM workers getting back to work back in November. Uh, one thing, manufacturing was a weak spot in the U.S. numbers, down 12,000 jobs. Economists were expecting a gain there, but steady as she goes in both economies, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And so really, it was fo- focusing first really on Canada, is that it really just backs the Bank of Canada's assessment that Canada's labor force really remains resilient despite the trade headwinds. The trade headwinds in both the ca- both Canada and the U.S., they have impacted, we've, which we've discussed before, some of the surveys regarding sentiment, but they really aren't showing through in jobs numbers. And so the, what, what you really want to focus on is the actual jobs numbers as much as as much as you would look at some of the sentiment but as well for Canada 2019 their service jobs uh, outpaced the uh, goods producing industries which is something interesting to note but simply just a data point in an array of data points uh, on the US side really just slowing growth but growth nonetheless as you as you mentioned 10 straight years of payroll gains it Literally just steady as she goes is the apt way to put it. Yeah, I wanted to touch on implication for investors from a monetary policy perspective. So we look at both of these really in line with expectations, jobs numbers, really helpful or really healthy, I should say. And what does that mean to central bankers? Well, you look at the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve in the U.S., and and it means that they're going to hold up, right? They're not in any rush to hike rates anytime soon. And they both seem content just uh, holding, not cutting anymore. Obviously, the Fed had cut a number of times last year. The, The Bank of Canada has been holding steady, but we're really not expecting any major change from the major central banks in North America just off the steady jobs numbers that we've seen over the past number of months. And that is it for us on episode 47 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, you can always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, I am the People's Hedge Fund Manager at J. Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And you can find me at M underscore Kesslering. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-I-N-G. And until next week, we wish you happy trading, speculating, investing, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.